When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. It's me, Jonathan London, your host, and we've got a special episode for you guys today. I say today because we're starting to release Geekscapes more regularly. You're getting almost two episodes a week, sometimes three. Uh, We've just got a lot going on, and I really appreciate the fact that you're sharing the show, subscribing, and leaving reviews. That's really meant a lot. It's really helped us a ton, and we've had some great episodes. Dan Fogler from Fantastic Beasts last week was awesome. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you definitely want to go back and listen to that episode. And this week is no different. We've got Dean Devlin. You'll know Dean's work as a writer-producer on such 90s Roland Emmerich movies as Universal Soldier, Stargate, Independence Day, The 2000 Godzilla, The Patriot. We definitely talk about those things. We also talk about his TV work on TNT with shows like The Librarians. And this week, Dean has his movie out, Bad Samaritan. It's got Robert Sheehan, you might recognize from the UK Misfits show. And David Tennant. He's Doctor Who. Of course you love him. Uh, And I really enjoyed this movie. It was great sitting down and talking directing with him. Got to give a big shout out to Elena, Margaret, and Allison for helping put this together. We went back and forth for a while. And I'm really, really, really glad we stuck with it. Because, as you'll soon find out, Dean and I have a great conversation. Thank you guys for listening. And enjoy Dean Devlin. Hey Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode, and this one's super special. I'm sitting in the offices of Mr. Dean Devlin, who, I don't know where you guys were in the 90s, but for me, the big movie, for me, was Universal Soldier, which this man wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and that one kind of kicked uh, kicked off, uh, for me, uh, a bit of a appreciation for Van Damme. Those of you guys who listen to Geekscape know mm-hmm. I have a soft spot for Mr. Van Damme. Um, but obviously that's not where it ended. I remember showing up to the movie theaters one night. It was an opening night for a film, and my father and I were turned away because the movie was sold out, and that movie was Stargate, (laughs) which Dean is also responsible for. And ultimately, uh, a few years later, I went to see Independence Day. Um, That was the summer of 96, which is a big summer for me. Uh, It was the summer I lost my older brother, not to start it off Geekscape on too somber a note, but I remember seeing it when I was at camp that summer, and coming back to Austin and saying, you know what, my, my younger brother Paul and I uh, have had a rough summer. Let's get some escape. Let's get out of our heads, and let's go see this movie again. And I took him to see Independence Day, and I think that it was a big cathartic moment. And it's Paul's birthday today, and uh, 
And that's what I remember about Independence Day. Wow. Everybody's that's got that a moment. remarkable story. I just remember using it as like an escape from my brother and I when we were really needing it. And I think that you have made this career, and we'll, we're going to talk about, in genre and in storytelling. And I think that that might be at the most basic uh, uh I think that's the that, that's the crux of it. That's the that's what, that's what we need this thing for. That's what we need fiction and storytelling for. I think that the whole function of genre entertainment is that they're bedtime stories. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that we tell bedtime stories to our children to try and let them escape from whatever problems they're dealing with during the day or to inspire them to go into other places, I think that's what genre entertainment is. Uh, you know... Um, Currently, I'm doing a film that's a, a scary movie, and I was listening to Jordan Peele talking about Get Out, and he was saying that the whole role of frightening movies is to allow us to l- stare at our fears. This cultural catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've always felt that the bedtime story is an important part of our culture, and that that's exactly what genre entertainment's about. And your story illustrates it in the most beautiful way I've ever heard. Yeah, and... Um I just remember it not being a silly movie for me, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I have fun, I had fun with the, with the Emmerich movies, I had fun with the movies that you did with Roland, and obviously I, I love quoting <laughs> Universal Soldier and like the scene where he's in a diner and he's like, please, I just want to eat, <laughs> and so I mean, I'm all ears, like I love that movie, um, but, the, but I always, I always also felt like, uh, like they got a bad shape. Like they got they, they they sometimes got painted in an unfair light. When people well, the were, week that Independence Day came out, I'll never forget. Out of the blue, I got a phone call from Steven Spielberg, which you know for me as a fanboy was a huge moment to suddenly get this call. Mm-hmm. And he was calling to congratulate Roland and I on the movie. And to say how much he liked it and that he actually felt he had learned some things from watching the movie about blending genres together that he was anxious to try himself. But then he said something really interesting. He said, I want you guys to be prepared and not get upset when six months from now, when people talk about your film, they talk about it in really negative terms. He said, right now, everyone's saying very nice things about the movie and they're glowing about the movie. But later they're going to say negative things about the movie and about you guys. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because you're getting too successful too fast. Hmm. And our culture doesn't like that. And so they have to put you down. And then he told the story about how when he made E.T., which he felt was the best film he'd ever made, but by the time the Oscars came out, people were only talking about the M&M product placement and the Neil Diamond song, and they were no longer really talking about the movie or what it was about. And so I think Roland and I, to some degree, suffered from too much success too quickly. But you're just, I mean, you're in your 30s. You've, you've been working at this for years, and it never felt too quickly for you, did it? Well, for, it just felt like backlash, or what do you think? No, I mean, look, at, at the time, we didn't really care, because what we cared about was, did the movies do well? Did people like sure. them? Sure. You know, I've never cared about Oscars or anything like that. You know, I, I, again, I, I've always liked popcorn movies. I wanted to make popcorn movies. And as long as people wanted to go see them, that was the biggest reward you could get. Um, you know, when we made ones that the people didn't like, that hurt. 
Mm-hmm. That I cared about, but I never really cared about what critics said. Right. Um, so, what were those films that, when you were growing up, New York City, you you those were your escapes? Well, again, Spielberg was my hero, and of course, I loved George Lucas, and and I loved uh, uh, James Cameron. Uh, uh, on the genre side, these were the guys who I loved, and then you know, on the art house side, it was. Francois Truffaut and Scorsese, obviously, uh, and Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these were all all my heroes growing up, and certainly my films have very blatantly played tribute to all of them. Right, and this most recent one, uh, Geeks gave us Bad Samaritan, uh, and I think I'm going to air this episode the week that it comes out. Um, this one, you Geeks gave us who are Doctor Who fans will recognize, no doubt, Mr. David Tennant. Um, but Robert Sheehan, I'd never seen uh, Misfits, the UK's Misfits, and everybody, everybody told me to see it. You got to see Misfits. You got to see Misfits, and then that's where this he came out of, and he's your lead. Yeah, have you have you seen it since? I've not, I have not seen Misfits. I, I highly I highly uh, recommend you go binge watch it. Okay, it is it completely redefines the superhero myth. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, I'm crazy about it. And, and you put Robert in two movies now. Well, what happens, I was watching that series with my wife, and she's an actress, and we uh-huh. both agreed that this kid had something really, really special. And we were both really excited to follow his career and see what he was going to do. And I was doing another film a couple years ago, and I wrote a part specifically for him. And fortunately, I was allowed to cast him in the part, and we got to know each other. And the more I, I knew the kid, the more I believed that this guy is really the real deal. And that was Geostorm. Yeah. And so uh, what I was desperate for him to read was Bad Samaritan. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I called him and I said, this is the one we got to do together. And where did Bad Samaritan come from? Because I think I, sent, I, think I, sent, uh, I had watched the trailer, and as I was putting it together, I, I was asked for some prompt questions, which... Geekscapist, let me show you behind the curtain. I've never really uh, asked for prompt questions too often, but I was like, okay, let me send in my thoughts about where I think this conversation is going to go. And after watching the trailer, I was thinking something very rear windowish and Hitchcockian. But and after seeing the movie and the fact that this character starts in a morally kind of ambiguous way, and Geekscapist, I don't want to spoil the movie for you because it does have twists and turns. But Robert plays a kid who's a valet driver, and we all saw that. The, the stories that were popping up in the newspaper about valet drivers and they get your keys and they know where you live because they can see your registration in your club compartment and while you're in the restaurant they run to your house <laughs> and they rob your place and we, we've heard those stories or hopefully not been victims of them but uh, but that's that's Robert's character he's a photographer and he is trying to do well by his girlfriend but he does have this side business of robbing houses as a valet driver and he breaks into this one house and notices that there's a woman stashed there and he can't help her at the time because he's crunched for time but he swears he's going to come back and help her but David Tennant whose house it is this wealthy individual who's untouchable by the law um, discovers that there's a cat and mouse game that starts up and it actually started reminding me more of Strangers on a Train Oh, interesting. where this person has a life he's frustrated by it a little bit and he kind of opens the door a little to the devil and saying, hey, I do something for you, you know what I mean? It, but, but it's like a reverse Strangers on a Train. This isn't a favor. This is like, uh, th- this is like a pushing against each other, you know? And it's interesting. I, I'd nev- I hadn't thought of that parallel, but I, I see it now that you're saying it. Yeah. I mean, look, certainly all thrillers that don't rely on just pure blood and guts shock value mm-hmm. owe everything to, to Hitchcock. I mean, he 
created the, the cinematic language for telling these kinds of thrillers. Um, but there was also a, a, a series of filmmakers who were influenced by Hitchcock. And, and, and to some degree, I think our film shares more DNA with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you think of a film like Disturbia, for instance, you know, where the horror is a real horror that could live next door and nobody believes our hero because he's got a bad past. So I think there's some DNA sharing there. Um, but also I think there's a, you know, for me as a, as a filmmaker, I was a huge fan, as, as you pointed out over here, of Brian De Palma. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I'm pointing out the fact that I have the helmet from uh, Phantom of the Paradise in my office, and yeah. he immediately recognized it. <laughs> I walked over and was like, whoa, whoa, I gotta see this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was a huge Brian De Palma fan, and of course a Hitchcock fan as well. So I think that had a lot to do with the uh, the, the visual uh, 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 narrative of the film. Mm -hmm. But the, the story itself just came from Brandon Boyce, who had written At Pupil and Wicker Park. And I... I, I Roland Emmerich and I nearly financed at Pupil because hmm. the original financing of it fell through and there was a moment where they didn't know what they were going to do with it and we were going to try and put the money together and make it. And that was a Brian Singer film. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden they found the money and they were able to do it. But in that little window, we got to know uh, Brandon a little bit and we became friends and I've been friends with him ever since. And what I loved about at Pupil is for me, it's one of the most evil films I've ever seen because... It's real evil. It's yeah. not supernatural. It's not a monster. It's not a creature. Ian it's, McKellen plays this Nazi who's... Who's escaped. Who's escaped, yeah. And it's real evil. It's the kind of evil that exists in our life that we try to pretend doesn't, isn't there. So when he told me he'd written an, a new movie, uh, he, he called up and said, I'm about to go out with a new script. Would you mind giving me some notes so I can you know, do a last polish before I send it out? And I said, Sure. So I read the script, and I said, well, I really only have one note for you, and that note is don't show this to anyone because I'm making this damn movie. <laughs> How, and when was that? Well, it was actually before Geostorm. Right. It, was, uh, it was a couple years ago, and I really wanted to make it I really wanted to make it right away, but then Geostorm started to come together, and so I had to put it on hold for a while. Uh, but the minute Geostorm was over, I was like, all right, now I'm doing the movie that I really want to make. And, and how is Geostorm an easier movie to make than what seems to be a smaller production, a smaller film? Well, it's just the difference of studio and independent. Right. You know, uh, when someone else writes a check... We're going to go you, play, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, there's advantages and a lot of disadvantages. Mm -hmm. But uh, a movie of that size, uh, it was going to be a lot harder for me to finance Geostorm than if a studio came in and wrote a check. So the opportunity came up and, and we moved forward with it. But uh, Bad Samaritan is 100% independent. And, you know, a lot of times movies are called independent movies when what they really mean is that they're art house movies. Sure. This is independent in that there's no studio involved on any level. We financed the film, we made the film, and we're actually releasing it to theaters ourselves. There's no studio involved whatsoever. Wow. So this is a very unique situation, completely independent. And it's because of that independence that I could cast Robbie Sheehan and David Tennant. Had this been a studio film, I would never have been allowed to cast them. Yeah, and it seems like there's a, a an Irish influence. It, it, he, like Robert got to play Irish. He didn't have to change his voice. He wasn't forced to be an American stud. He wasn't for you know he That's was a right. kid who had some shading to him. That's right, which made it a bit more believable. And uh, and Geekscapes, I don't want to spoil too much, but when you get to the ending. Um, I you know what it, it's there's still some ambiguity to it as far as 
um, the damage that was done. That's right. A studio would want the everything, has to everything had up. to be cleaned up and had a bow on it, and everybody wants to see them get married. Everyone's like, like the notes are always, let's see them get married. I want to see the family together. I want to see this stuff, and they, you know, they go down such a dark path in this movie. Well, that and that's the nasty. thing, you know, if, if the film had been developed the studios, I'm sure he would have been taking care of his dying mother while raising puppies, you know, doing all these things to make him, quote-unquote, likable. But Yet not interesting. Well, I, I don't think that that is what makes this character likable. To me, uh-huh. what is interesting and where, why I think this movie is worth making and worth seeing is that I think everybody in their life has done things they regret, to varying degrees, and everybody has made mistakes to varying degrees. And it's not a bad thing to have made a mistake. The question is, how do you react to it afterwards? Do you rationalize the mistake and then write it off, Mm -hmm. which to me is the ultimate act of cowardice? Or do you look it right in the face and say, okay, I screwed up, and I'm not going to let that moment define me as a human being? And that's really what this movie's about. And so he didn't need to be squeaky clean. He didn't need to be a saint. He needed to be a person who has good things about him and bad things about him, and he makes a terrible, terrible mistake. And it's how he deals with that mistake is what I think made the movie compelling. And it's interesting because when we were test screening the movie, um, we, we got very high test ratings, and we would ask the audiences, we said, well, why did you like the movie? And they all said, it, because they felt it was really original. And we said, well, why is it original? And they all said, because he left the girl. And he, mm-hmm. and, you know, and he, you know, and because he, he split and left the yeah. girl. Everyone else thought there's no way he's going to do that. His fear took over, right? They didn't think that he, that we would portray someone at that high a level of fear. And then they felt bad for him because they understood that that's a very human thing. It's not a pretty thing. It's not an admirable thing, but it's a human thing. And how he deals with it from that point forward is what made the movie compelling and interesting. Mm-hmm. And how do you pick through it? Like, what do you draw as? Dean Devlin, like when your conversations with Robert, as you're picking through these emotional beats, what what do you guys draw on? Because <laughs> I'm guessing neither of you had been in that situation before. But um, but how do you how do you get the residents there in the conversations you have with the actor? Well, Robbie and I talked about fear, and we talked about the way that people talk about themselves, and then versus the things they actually do in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, you know. Recently, there was this horrible school shooting, and there was a guard there, and he didn't go in. Right. And it's easy to just rip this guy apart for the not Parkland going in. The Parkland shooting yeah. with, the sh- with the guy from the sheriff's office. Yeah. yeah, and it's very easy to rip this guy apart and say, "Oh, he should have gone in." But you know what? If you're standing there with that gun and you hear an automatic rifle going off, I'm not sure you're running right in, even if you are trained. I mean, mm-hmm. these are complex moments, and no one's really sure how they're going to react until they're in that moment. And, the, again, my question is, how do you react afterwards? You know, and so as we were preparing the movie, we were talking about how deeply is he scarred from the moment of making a bad decision in fear. And we started talking about things in his life, things in my life. And then we started talking about things in movies, because sometimes that's a, a touchstone. And, and we, we were talking about that moment in Saving Private Ryan, when the soldier's at the bottom of the stairs and mm-hmm. his, his partner is being murdered at the top of the stairs and he's so frozen with fear he cannot move. Yeah. And it's such a humiliating, horrible... And I said, what if that had been you? What if, what if you had been the guy at the bottom of the stairs 
that petrified. Yeah, Could you live with yourself afterwards? In I, in, I mean, in, not to spoil Saving Private Ryan, you've had 20 years to watch it, my friends. But at the end, that is the big story of it. Is 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 Matt Damon's grown character <laughs> saying, "Was I good, like, was I a good man?" Having seen these people sacrifice themselves to bring him home, right? You know, and especially when as he watches Tom Hanks sacrifice at the end of the movie, it's like, "Was I was I a good man? Was this all worth it?" Um, it's it, it, and, and again, it goes back to why I think that there are <laughs> that you guys got when you got too too big too. I, I, I can't even quantify it getting too big too quickly because it just seems it seems like a, a binary simplification of something that's not simple. Um, but I, but the, the shading that goes on in the stories, I think, were things that were, I never felt like you guys got credit for. You know, the patriot to begin with. Well, that relationship between father and son and duty to country versus duty to family. And Well, yeah, Patriot's an interesting example of this, though, because when the movie came out, it had very much mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally 50-50. And most of the criticism uh, had to do with me and Roland being the filmmakers. Then this terrible tragedy happened in our country of 9-11, well, it was shortly after 9-11 that the DVD came out. Mm. So the, the summer of 2001, the movie came out. And I just moved to New York when, mm-hmm. when 9-11. I, was, I lived in New York for about a week before the, the towers were hit. Uh, and, and I remember they, they, Zoolander got delayed. No comedies were able to be released. Yeah. But you had released summer 2001 in, I'm guessing, October. Yeah. The DVD comes out for Brave. I, I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was right around 9-11. And there's The Patriots. And suddenly we had 100% positive reviews. And I think the reason for that was suddenly people were watching the movie and not watching the filmmakers. And suddenly they're watching the ideas of the sacrifice for uh, democracy. And it was very interesting to see how the reviews changed entirely based on what was happening in the news. How do you even... Try and have any control. You don't. You can't control that. I mean, when 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 there, when there was some, I guess, rock star status to you and Roland in, during the nineties. Like, did you, could you? Did you put? Did you push on the gas? Did you pull off on the gas? Like, like what you do know, you do? We didn't really pay attention to it. I mean, as mm-hmm. long as the movies performed and people liked it, we we kind of didn't care, and I still don't care. I mean, you know, the thing is, especially what's happened now with with reviewing. I think reviewing has really turned into a very ugly and, and unnecessary thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. Um, when I was growing up, there was many critics. You know, you had your national critics, you had your, your, your local critics, you had television, you had newspaper, and you would find the two or three critics that seemed to ha- represent your taste. Yes. And you'd say, oh, well, if he likes it, I'm probably going to like it. And you use that to decide where you're going to spend your money to see a movie. It made sense. Now, we aggregate them. Yes. So first of all, no one reads the reviews anymore. They look at the score. Well, the point of a review is to give you a complex, interesting analysis of a movie. For instance, we put out a movie last year uh, uh, that Rob Reiner directed called uh, LBJ. Mm -hmm. And the New York Times dedicated the first several paragraphs to what an amazing performance Woody Harrelson gave. But ultimately, they weren't a big fan of the movie. On Rotten Tomatoes, it was just simply... A thumbs down. It was just a negative review. But had you read that review, you might have been very interested in seeing that movie to see this incredible performance. 
So I think, one, it, the, the, the Rotten Tomatoes thing makes that no one reads reviews, but then it also means that everybody has an equal voice. And you know what? I do agree that everyone should have an equal voice, but not elites. And this is why we have user reviews. And user reviews come out the second anything comes out, like within seconds. Right. I'm all for user reviews. What people actually think of the product, that's useful. Why is it that movies is, is the only product in the world where we aggregate critics? Yeah, I think it's insane. And I think video game. I mean, uh, as the the guy with Geekscape, uh, I see. I do see it in video games. I do see it in the pop culture stuff. I, I see it in the the internet having been these early adopters who can quickly give opinion. It's uh, it's why Geekscape is. I've for the most part abandoned reviewing show uh, movies on this show or reviewing it really anything in lieu of sitting down with the people responsible because <laughs> it, it just got. It, for me, as, as a filmmaker, it just got silly to be sitting here talking contextless about something else. And I know I have gotten I've gotten emails in the past year uh, or two from people who said, "Oh, but I always re- agreed with you. I always like to see what you thought of something." And it well, wasn't. I, argue, I just never thought it mattered. I just I thought ar- to just see the movie. But I would argue with you on this point in that people turn in, tune into your podcast because they're interested in your opinion. Sure. So I think I think within the context of your podcast, you doing a review is a completely legitimate thing. People have gone there to hear your point of view. What I'm against is this aggregation. What I'm against is this whole Rotten Tomatoes thing. That if you go to watch a movie on cable television, the first thing it gives you is the Rotten Tomatoes score. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching time and time again where if I dig slightly deeper and look at the user reviews, the user reviews are totally the opposite. Yeah. I mean, we had nearly a hundred percent positive reviews. For Mother. And it literally had an F, the lowest rating I've ever seen amongst actual humans who see the movie. So the elites loved it, and real people thought it was the, the worst Seth movie. That's the Seth Rogen movie. Uh, which one? It, that was the movie with Seth Rogen? No, 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 no. This was the, the horror movie that... Um, oh, Mama. Yeah. It was called Mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know... Reverse. I was seeing the road trip movies. I know. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Which I was like, that, that, that didn't seem like a zero. That seemed fine. No, this was that horror movie that uh-huh. um, um, Jennifer Lawrence was in. Yes. Oh, it, which just seemed like... An, like I, I think those movies should be made because they're like experiments. They push the boundary of, of what film is. But they, the audience, they challenge you. But my point is that the audience... Hated that movie. Absolutely hated it. The lowest rating I've ever seen real humans give a movie since I've been making movies. Sure. And it was 100% positive on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. And yet I've watched other movies where it gets a 5% on Rotten Tomatoes, and you click one more space to the user reviews, and it's getting an 80%. Right. So to me, I, I think that the aggregation of reviews is, is, is detrimental to movies, is detrimental to movie making, and it's detrimental to the art of film criticism. Yeah, I don't know how you swing the pendulum back in the direction from the binary horse race. I, I, I do, I do. Yeah. You just simply got to convince people like Apple to stop using it. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, could you imagine if I went to Steve Jobs and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put on the Apple page the newest laptop that we're making, and we're going to aggregate what tech critics think of it. Sure. He would have fired me. He would have said, are you crazy? whole point of Apple is to connect human beings with each other. Let, let the user reviews say it. And we won't edit the review. If they don't like the product, we'll put it in. That's what Steve Jobs would say. He would never say, let, let the elites decide what's good and bad. Only movies do they allow that on. It, in reviewing things myself, it felt like ego. I, it felt like me throwing out my own 
thoughts on it, on something. When 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 what I really wanted to always know about the movie was the why. You know, I can always tell Dean Devlin what I think of Dean Devlin's movies, but it never interested me to tell people what I thought of Dean Devlin's movies. It always interested me to find out why. I mean, right now I want to. I would always want to know. Um, at least I find myself right now wanting to know uh, what brought you to that first script. Like what. You know, you said I'll tell you a story to that because you, you said you like Universal Soldier. I uh, yeah, like how uh, is that your first? Like, okay, so let me tell, let me tell you about Universal Soldier. So Roland Emmerich and I were going to make another film. And how'd you meet him? So I was actually an actor in a movie that Roland made in Germany, and I flew out to Germany to be in this movie, and it was the worst script ever. I mean, it was just <laughs> awful. But when I got there, I saw the most beautiful sets I'd ever seen. Uh-huh. And Roland was wonderful with the camera, and he was wonderful with the actors. And I said to him, I said, Roland, I, I, I don't understand. You're a really talented director. Why are you doing this terrible script? And he went, well, Dean, when I wrote it. And I was like, oh, Christ. <laughs> so <laughs> He has but, need of me. <laughs> but he, had, he really barely could speak English at that time. Okay. And the film was being shot in English. So the dialogue was terrible. And I said, would you mind if I improv my dialogue? And he said, no, please, I would love that. And so I started improving my own dialogue. And then after a couple of weeks, I'm uh, sorry, a couple of days, he said, uh, 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 you've, got to, you've got to help me. I've got a big problem. I said, what's that? And he goes, all the other actors are, are really upset. And I said, why? And he said, because you now have all the best lines of dialogue in the movie. Right. He said, would you rewrite their lines too? Sure. And that's what literally started a 12-year partnership of making movies together. And the, in Universal was a hired gig? So it Universal like... Soldier started this way. Roland and I were supposed to make another movie. It was called Isobar. It was a big $90 million movie. Now for 1991, $90 million is like a $200 million movie Absolutely. today. And he was going to direct it. I was writing the script. Um, uh, Joel, Joel Silver was the uh, producer, uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone was the star, and it all went to hell. The whole thing fell apart, and it never got made. And in the moment that it fell apart, the studio that was financing it was called Carolco, and the mm-hmm. man who ran it was a guy named Mario Casar. So Mario called Roland into his office, and he said, look, I feel terrible about the movie falling apart, but I have this other film. It's called Universal Soldier, and it stars Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, and uh, uh, if you want to do it, as long as you don't spend more than $12 million, it's greenlit and you've got to start shooting in six weeks. And Roland went, great, what's it about? And Mario said, I don't care. As long as it's called Universal Soldier and it stars Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren and you don't spend more than $12 million, you can make your movie. More than $12 million. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Because so, he knew how much he had pre-sold the movie. Sure. So Roland calls me up and says, Dean, we have a greenlit movie. We start shooting in six weeks. I, I go, what's it about? He goes, I don't know. Let's go meet and talk about it. And I said, well, well what, what's attached? And he said, it's Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren. And I went, what? Was there a pitch document at the time? Was no, there a script? that's was it. That, that's it. The name and these two. They, I mean, there had been a script, but they sure, didn't even want sure, to send it to us. Sure. So I said, Roland, do you know who Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren are? And he goes, no, but they must be important because they've got these deals. So I said, let me go get some videotapes. So I went to Blockbuster, <laughs> oh, no. and I got a whole bunch of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies and Dolph Lundgren movies. <laughs> yeah. And I, I brought them to Roland's house, and we started watching the movies. And he'd watch 10, 15 minutes of one, and they'd pop it out. He'd put another tape in 10, 51. And I could just see him getting more and more depressed <laughs> about the situation we were now in. <laughs> and I finally said, okay, Roland, you've now watched a bunch of movies with these guys in it. <laughs> what possibly is the opening of a movie starring these two guys? And Rowan said, they kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how that movie started. They kill each other, and then they play emotionless robots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's incredible. And 
in, in, in six weeks, you, you guys just said, okay. This we is wrote it, we prepped it, and we shot it. And it was a ball. We had a great time. <laughs> and, it was, and the franchise keeps going. Yeah. Which is the thing. Like, the franchise just it's amazing. Kept going. It found its life on, video, on DVD and video. and, and, and It had a TV series at one point, and there's been sequel movies and sequel movies of the week. It's, it, it's, it's, it's like, the, uh, uh, Freddy, it won't die. <laughs> but you guys needed that movie. Was that his first uh, film here in the States? No, no. I, he, I think he had done Time Cop. Well, Time Cop was, was Time Cop came a few years after. Oh, was it after? That was the one that because uh, Sam Raimi produced that one. Yeah, so I guess it was, I, I no, you're was, right. I guess it, he had done he'd he'd done Bloodsport and well, one other one. Well, Van Damme had, but was that Roland's first movie? Oh yeah, no, that was Roland's first American. Because it film. seemed like yeah. you guys couldn't pass up that situation because you just have to get on base at that point. Does it that looked, make sense? You know what, Roland Did had you this like had a wonderful gift in his life, which is that his father had created a very successful. Uh, uh, company, and he knew one day he would inherit a whole lot of money. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, yeah. Roland never did this business for money, ever. Right. Roland always said, I do this for fun. Mm-hmm. And for him, if the movie wasn't going to be fun, he didn't want to do it. Is it easy for him to say, but were you in the similar situation? No, I desperately needed the yeah. money. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you, so, you came to him and was like, hey, listen, like. Well, he was so sweet. When he came to the United States, he hired me, and again, this is early 90s, he hired me at $1,000 a week to be his assistant. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was basically just to keep me employed, to keep me, and then, and then he nurtured my career, and I owe everything to Roland. You know, he, he, through him, I became a writer and a producer and ultimately a director. Um, on all the films we did together, he let me direct Second Unit. Hmm. Uh, at dailies at night, he would scream at me in front of the entire crew, saying, oh. Ah, Dean, why do you shoot it like that? I would never put the camera... You don't have enough smoke. Why is there nothing in the foreground? Why is the camera so high? Don't look down on your actors. <laughs> and I swear to God, to this day, yeah. when I'm directing on set, I hear that little voice in the back of my head screaming at me, saying, Ah, Dean, don't put the camera there. Why are you framing it like that? <laughs> do, you, do you talk to him about your films? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's been a great friend and a great mentor. Well, um, that's... I'm I'm re- Geekscapist. You find me uh, at a loss for words because that is such an incredible story, <laughs> which is why I started this podcast. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, talk about your own directing work, and then also talk about uh, branching into TV. Uh, I've I've had my work in in television, and it is a different beast. Creatively, it just goes at such uh, a pace. And al- although you've showrun shows like Librarians and uh, your work. Um, is it, I mean, it, does it still feel like you're a guest sometimes showing up on these sets knowing that you're being preceded or followed by another director and that you, there's a level of fluidity? Like, is there a macro or to the micro is kind of what I'm asking as far well, as your TV show. I've been right? fortunate in that I've never directed anybody else's show. Okay. Would I would imagine... Interested? Would you be interested in doing no. that? No. Okay. No. I, but I, I would imagine it would be, it would be tough mm-hmm. for my personality type to go direct somebody else's show. Um, you know, I, I, I came to recognize flaws in my own character uh, uh, a long time ago and that I really was not well-suited to work with the studios. I didn't have the right temperament. I didn't have the right personality. Uh, and I didn't do my best work. And so it was around 2004 that a man named Michael Wright, who at the time was the head of TNT, asked to have me uh, uh, over for lunch. And we were having lunch, and he said, 
I would very much like to have your kind of movie on my network. Hmm. And I said, well, first of all, I'm complimented that you think there is a my kind of movie. Uh, I said, but my films tend to be very expensive. You know, I don't know how, I, how we could do one of my films as a movie of the week. And he said, well, you know, most movies of the week have budgets between three and five. He goes, but we could go all the way up to ten. And I said, well, that sounds great, but my movies cost like between 50 and 150. And he goes, well, I don't know how you would deal with that, but, but you know, we would, we would, you know, we, we could support it uh, better than anyone else. And I said, well, I'm, I said, not to be indelicate, indelicate but how, how would you deal with compensation? I mean, I see a percentage of the box office. If I make a movie that does really well, I, I make a lot of money. And television, it seems all I could get is a little salary for making it. Is it really worth my time and energy? And he said, well, you're right, but if you make the movie for me, you could own the movie. And I said, say what? Wow. <laughs> and wow. He, said, he said, if you make the movie for me, if let's say the budget is $12 million. He said, I'll put in nine. You put in the rest. I have the right to show it on my network for four years, and you own it for the rest of the world and domestically after four years forever. And that was during the rise of DVD and yeah. box sets. Like, that was 0403. Yeah. Where you, I mean, first off, on his part, that is some great, like, forward thinking. Yeah. To be like, to, to, to know that TV was going to go, A, binge, and B, cinematic. Michael's always been ahead of the curve. And that, that the singular visions that we only, at that point, saw in in, in film, right. we're going to go to television, and now it's that's where you go to see singular visions. It seems like because everything else it's completely seems like flipped, a it's absolutely completely flipped. And then you saw this, uh, oh, you saw the, the 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 value in ownership. Well, it changed my whole company. We literally in that moment ended our relationships with studios, and we started doing everything independently, and we started owning everything. So we owned all the librarians, all of Leverage, all the librarian movies. We owned. The uh, the 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 uh, miniseries uh, uh, the triangle, we owned um, uh, the copyright on on Flyboys and Who Killed the Electric Car. I mean, it literally transformed our our company. Um, and it really wasn't until the last couple of years that I went back and did a couple of things at the studios, um, only to remind myself why I left in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with that kind of success in history and independence, I mean, when something like Geostorm pops back up. What was the process of sticking your toe back into that pool? It was it was just a terrible mistake. It was a terrible. Mistake. I shouldn't have. I, sh- I should have kept the project for electric, financed it independently. It started as an electric project. Well, yeah, I, I, I spec the script with mm-hmm. one of the writers from Leverage, and uh, um, you know, I had I, become very friendly with David Ellison from doing Flyboys, and I, I let him see the script. He was interested in making the movie, and. I thought, okay, what the heck? Sure. But I, it was, it was a big mistake. I should have, I should have kept the film here. I should have done it internally. Uh, it, I would have made a better film. I would have had a better experience. Um, so it was definitely a mistake. How do you make a movie um, of that scale w- at Electric? This is what uh, the next question. Do you, do you break it up into a miniseries? Do you break it up into like, do you, do you? Does no, it you just raise the money. You just raise the money. You just figure it out. I mean, look, we did we did Flyboys, and that was a sixty million dollar movie about World War One fighter pl- pilots mm-hmm. that had almost no commercial appeal whatsoever. I think I think had I worked on it, I, I probably could have figured it out. I just I, I I just took the easier route, sure. Or at least I thought it was the easier route. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, t- it's easy for you to say today, April in you know, April of twenty eighteen, but there may have been other factors fatiguing you at the time. 
that just said, I don't know. You, you know, know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, this is not I, an easy path. And again, I, I try and steer the geekscapists away from this binary idea. Of, of I, I think I knew even in pre-production. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a moment I called my wife and I said, I probably should just walk off the picture right now. Hmm. And then she said, she said, I support you if you want to. She goes, but that just doesn't sound like you. And I was like, you're right. And that's what I'm saying. I, I just don't have the right personality for doing studio pictures. You really need a different type of mindset. Uh, here at Electric Entertainment, we like to say that we're in the bubble because sure. we don't. We're, we're part of Hollywood, but we're not. We don't integrate with Hollywood. No, I, I was talking um, to your uh, your assistant walking up, and I said, well, "You guys do everything from top to bottom here." Everything. I mean, Geekscape is. I I went to use the restroom, and I passed a really nice. Post facility, <laughs> like I, I mean, in the fact that you guys are handling your own post, you're probably handling your own development and your own. I mean, this digital this effects, foreign sales, domestic release, top deliverables, down. top down. The only thing we don't do here is shoot our shows, but we have our own studio up in Portland, Oregon, where we have four sound stages and ten years of props and camera equipment and lights and dollies and cranes and. And why Portland? Because I, I saw that Portland was the location of the, the film, Bad Samaritan. And again, Geekscapists, I enjoyed the movie. If you are into uh, thrillers with twists and turns, um, I definitely recommend it. And when you mentioned De Palma, I, I, I was definitely thinking, I, I was like, oh, that's so clear. That was like the bullseye I didn't even aim for. <laughs> it, very, it very much feels yeah. like some of those better De Palma movies. Not Dressed to kill. Oh, that, yeah. It was like, at any point, were you tempted to just be like, this is going to be my one take master. I'm just going <laughs> to run through this. And all that. <laughs> no, because the, the one take masters need one thing that I don't have. You got to be a genius. Yeah. And I'm just not. And I don't pretend I am. I need to edit it. I need to change it. I need to look at it later and go, oh, I made a big mistake. I'm going to recut it. If you're going to do those those beautiful movies that go on forever with those one shots, you have to you have to be a genius. I see Joe Wright doing them, and, Joe, and I, I think there's multiple ways to do them. I see friends of mine doing them on television, and and they're just moving so fast that and there's a lot happening in front of the frame, so it doesn't really matter about the camera movement too much. You can kind of move the sweep the camera around wherever you want. There's so much happening in frame; it's usually a fight action sequence <laughs> that. The shot is the shot could have been anything, um, <laughs> but then you have somebody like I just think Joe Wright is so good at those things, and you know, with, or but I mean, look at Birdman. I mean, yeah, the whole movie Bird- in one shot. And I mean, you got to be a genius to do that because it's not just about throwing a bunch of stuff on frame. You have to be hitting narrative beats in the same way you would with cuts yeah. and just treating. I mean, you know, another thing. It's not it's not all in one shot, but another movie that felt like that to me, where I felt like this is the work of a genius, Baby Driver. Oh, very much. I mean, every single beat of that music had to have been planned before he starts shooting the, the sequence. I thought there. Were, I think that opening sequence where he's going for coffee is a one. That, that one is a one. Yeah, that one is. Yeah. And, and I'm in. That and one I think that was the upgraded version of his one in Shaun of the Dead. Right. Where Simon <laughs> walks to. Right. And we've had Simon on the show, and his story about. Uh, they didn't pull permit for that. No kidding. For when he, the opening of Shaun of the Dead, he walks to the convenience yeah. store, yeah, yeah. everything's fine. He walks back from the convenience store, a zombie outbreak <laughs> is happening. And he's in his own head. I think he's listening to the radio or something and he's carrying yeah. coffee. And they didn't pull permit for that. And people were furious because he's just, <laughs> he and Edgar are having their friends try and pull people from walking in front of the camera in front of frame. The one in Baby Driver, um, there, there, there are times when, 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 it, with the beginning of that movie, I was like, okay, I don't. I, this movie is in danger of being 
like very cute for me, and I in in with the music and the 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 clip of the dialogue and stuff like that. And sometimes that can have this distancing effect. I found that one shot to be all I needed to be all in on that movie, and I but loved that's, it. But that's why I'm saying genius because it was so easy for that movie to go off the rails. Absolutely, and, and it didn't. And that's why I'm saying this is a guy who so sh- has such a sure hand, mm-hmm. who really just knows exactly what he wants to do. I mean, you could just feel it when you watch the movie. And you don't, you have no interest in. Building those muscles and saying, "Hey, because I, I don't, cause I I don't think it's how I think you. I think you I, you work on those. The way I do it, I mean, I'm all about process. Okay, you know, I, you know, I'll tell you a, a little story. On one of the first things I wrote for Roland Emmerich, um, the way we used to work when we wrote together is he would be in one room doing a storyboard of the scene, and I would be in the other room actually writing the scene, and then we'd show each other. Hmm. He'd show me the storyboards, I'd show him the script, and then we'd rewrite what we were doing. Yeah. Right? Meet in the middle, start meeting in the middle somehow, or getting yeah. excited by the other person's ideas. Exactly. And there was one day where I was working on a scene, and Roland kept waiting for me to come out of the room with the, the pages, and I wasn't coming out. And finally he walked in about an hour, he goes, what the hell's going on? Where's the damn scene? And I said, I don't know, every time I write this, it just, it's so, I feel like I've seen this before, I don't like this dialogue, it's just, it's just not good. And Roland put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Dean... You're not a genius, oh, and I'm not a genius. But if we work really, really hard, we could become good craftsmen. Mm-hmm. And that just took the weight of the world off my shoulders. Right. Okay, I'm never going to be some of these guys I admire, but I could still be a very good filmmaker if I work really hard and really analyze what I'm doing and come up with processes that work for me. Yeah. And so for me, it is a process. I mean, I really respect the writer that I work with. Uh, I, I respect my crew. And when I don't have my crew, I, I don't feel like I'm the same filmmaker. Yeah, that's tough. So, you know, for me, when, when I've got all my systems in place and then I can cut something and then recut it and change it and test it, and you know, for me, I like to evolve what I'm doing. Uh, I wish I was the kind of guy who could see it exactly perfectly in my head and be right every time. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm dead wrong. Mm-hmm. There, I, again, I don't want to give away the ending on this movie, but I was dead wrong on a, a moment near the end of this film. You still feel that way? Oh, no, no, I was, yeah. for sure. And the first time we did the test, there was this enormously bad laugh in Ooh. exactly the wrong place. Now, until I heard that laugh, I didn't realize the mistake I'd made. The second I heard the laugh, I was like, oh, my God, I see what they see. And mm-hmm. I didn't see it before. Luckily, I was able to change it and fix it and, and get a good laugh that we needed. But, uh, you know, I think you have to be open, or at least unless you're a genius, you have to be open to that. You may, you may get some things wrong. But if you create a process where you can be honest about when, you're, when you did something right and you've done something wrong, then you can fix it and you can make it better and you can have it evolve. You just develop those through skin knees or, I mean, over time? Because it feels like there's a level of confidence that has to be in place as well to just push through the, that feeling of not being a genius. Well, it may, it may be because I started years ago as a stand-up comedian. Sure. And when you're a comic... It's pass-fail. There's no grayscale. They laughed or they didn't laugh. It's, it's that simple. And so for me, filmmaking is, is the moment working or is it not working? Are they getting it or are they not getting it? And so I like the testing process. You know, I, I know a lot of filmmakers don't like it. I like it. What I, what I, where I get uptight about it is who is judging the results of the test. Sure. And I'll give you a very good example of this, which was Stargate. The first time we tested Stargate, we had, a, we had a very poor score, and we had a very high, slow rating. And the studio at the time, or the financier at the time, 
said, we need more action and there's too much talking. Hmm. Let's cut out all this talky talk and more action. Now, this was the first film I'd ever produced. Was it an original idea? Yeah, me? Okay. for me and Roland. It was an original idea. It yeah. wasn't another, hey, no. we got these guys. And no, we spec the script and it yeah. was all us. Uh, but I said in the room, I said, I don't think the problem is enough action. I think the problem is the, the audience doesn't care about our characters enough. And therefore, it feels slow because sure. they're not emotionally involved with them. Well, everyone told me to shut the hell up, and they basically pushed Roland and I out of off the movie, and they brought in these new editors, and they had to shoot some new action sequence, and we cut out half the... Anyway, we tested the film again, and the slow rating doubled. Yeah. And the overall test score went down. Now, at this point, pretty much everybody just left the movie. Everybody just thought this was a lost cause, it was going to be a terrible movie, and we, we literally went to the editing room the next day, and there was no one there. So Roland and I grabbed the reels of film, and we went to another editing suite where no one knew we were, and we worked in 24-hour shifts, and we completely recut the movie. And not only did we put back all the stuff we had cut out, we added more dialogue scenes that we had never put in the movie because we sure. thought it was too much talking. We, we doubled how much talking there was in the movie. Um, and then we tested one last time, and we tested through the roof, and uh, the, the slow rating vanished entirely. And that's a really... I mean, the opening of that movie is when they're butting heads, and they're... That's... You, that's kind of a that, that balancing act is a tough one to get right. Um, you reshaped it in a vacuum prior to that test. It feels like uh, could you say that that it was an extension of you and Roland's relationship? And, and sometimes, I mean, there was a friendship there, but sometimes it seems like you guys Not at that point took around. Yeah, I mean, look, the th- the thing, the reason why our partnership lasted as long as it did is because we could yell at each other over a creative idea. Sure. But never over something that was just ego. Mm -hmm. If you're only fighting over a creative idea, you can have a beer afterwards. The minute it starts to become whose trailer is bigger, who's a bigger star, you're doomed. There's Fast and the Furious stuff. You start (laughs) hearing rumors about the Fast and the Furious or these bigger franchises that start to have that story. Then it becomes about something that's not redeemable. And, you know, I think as long as our, our partnership lasted, the good news about it is we could be very hostile with each other as far as ideas, mm-hmm. but we were never hostile personally. It was never ego. Were you guys stoked for Godzilla? As someone who grew up with genre, were you just completely stoked to be looking at Godzilla, or was it a big thing to take on? I think... All right, so I don't think I've ever said this before, so you're going to get the first time I told this story, but I think that the, tr- the p- biggest problem with our Godzilla was that I pushed Roland into doing it. Hmm. You know, the thing you have to remember about Independence Day is that at the time, it was the biggest success ever. Number one movie of all time that year. And so we were getting a lot of offers. And we got a kind of crazy great offer from TriStar to go do Godzilla. Now, I grew up a huge Godzilla nerd. How could you not? (laughs) I loved it. But Roland really... That wasn't in his lexicon. He, he didn't really watch the old Godzilla movies. I mean, he could appreciate what it was as a cultural thing, but it certainly wasn't a passion of his. But I really pushed him to do it. And Roland ultimately found a way to tell the story that would make him excited. But it wasn't coming from a fan place. And I think that... I mean, what's interesting over the years is that people who never liked Godzilla before, saw that movie, and kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. But people who were Godzilla fans hated it. 
you know, with this new Godzilla uh, that was made a few years ago, I think there was a side-by-side analysis of the story. And um, my one my one criticism of the, the newer legendary Godzilla, which is a movie I really, really enjoy, is the sort of Forrest Gumping of the Aaron Johnson character where he happens to be in the situation he needs to be in when it arises. And it's a little Forrest Gumpy, whereas the Matthew Broderick character in your movie has this goal he's chasing and actually has legitimate things in the there and now. He doesn't happen upon the circumstance right. and be luckily there to be the person to handle it. Um, he's really busting his ass <laughs> to stay ahead of the, to be laying the track while the train's coming at him. Well, we tried... It's very ex- goal-driven. We tried an experiment with Godzilla that was a mistake. And what it was is we said, you know, classic genre entertainment or classic movie making in general is set up conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And we said, what if we don't set up the characters in the first act? What if we set it up in the lull of the second act? You know, we said, what if we just throw you into the movie? There's tons of action. Right off yeah, the bat. Just, destruction, destruction. And just l- let you be on this roller coaster ride, and then when there's a moment to breathe, we'll tell you who the characters are. Well, that doesn't work. And it's never worked, and there's a reason why we don't do it that way. And what happens is, is when you don't set up the characters the off Stargate the top... Stargate didn't teach you that? <laughs> the, 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 well, the studio's I, edit of Stargate didn't teach you that? <laughs> I, think, I think we were trying to see if we could, we could change the format. Sure, sure. I think it was an intellectual idea, and not... And not well thought out. <laughs> right. And, you know, what happens is the audience makes up their minds on the characters. And so no matter what storyline you tell about them later, it's too late. They've already made up their minds. But then if you look at something like Independence Day, for instance, we told you about a woman and her child and, and how she loved this man first. And then we later told you that she worked as a stripper. Mm-hmm. Had we told you she was a stripper first, you'd have had a completely different judgment about her and her kid. Right. So we, there was a movie where we knew, set up the characters first, mm-hmm. and then put them into the story of, that we watched. Godzilla, we tried to play around with the format, and it was a big mistake. In, is that what's so uh, kind of reassuring about the independent model you have built here at Electric, is that you say, okay, and especially with TV, which has a bit more of a running room, and, you can, and, and there's a lot more of a collaborative process, I'm guessing, on the writing end, where you can start playing with different languages and pacing ideas and turning things on their heads and saying, hey, if this isn't right, we have a couple more episodes to write the ship. Or if this isn't something that the audience responds to, we can veer it a different way or pivot. Well, I mean, the thing is, what we don't have here is other agendas. Sure. And part of the problem, I think, at studios is there's a lot of agendas. And, and more and more and more do they allow disparate voices into the process that don't belong. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you're trying to please way too many people. The middle management. Well, not just, I mean, just, just parts of management that really shouldn't have anything to do with storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was in the middle of shooting a movie. I was changing locations because somebody in marketing said that it should be at this other location than the location that made sense for the movie. And suddenly there was someone from foreign who wanted to change the, the, the ethnicity of certain actors. And it's like, they, those voices don't belong in the process. Right. They just don't belong in it. Um, I mean, everyone's allowed to suggest something, but when they can dictate, it's it's a real problem. Do you watch any of these big toys that are on screen and sometimes as a fan think, oh, well, it would have been fun to play with Captain America or a DC character or any of these? I mean, did you read, grow well, up I reading don't, I don't want, books? I, look, I don't want to... Does that make sense? I don't want to insult any individual filmmakers. No, but I, I think I, they're but I will good say, movies. But I will say this. 
because I do love genre entertainment. Yeah. But every once in a while, I'll watch a, a genre film where they've hired an art house director to elevate the material, mm-hmm. and it's terrible. And every once in a while, they'll hire a fanboy who loves the material, and it's great. Yeah. And I think the thing is, this whole idea of trying to upgrade genre is inherently pretentious. I'll tell you a story about my father. My father was a writer and a producer. But in the 1950s, he was starving. And he needed a job. And a friend of his worked for Marvel Comics and said, hey, you know, you can make some money working for Marvel. So he gave my dad some comic books and said, why don't you write up some it stories? It was the 50s. It was, so it was timely at the time. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. It's timely comics. So my father uh, um, writes up some storylines and he submits it. And he got this rejection letter from them. And the rejection letter simply said, please don't write us, quote, better comics. And I got it. It's like, you think you're better than our comics. We like our comics just the way they are, thank you. And if Mm -hmm. you don't like them, don't write them. And that was a huge lesson to me. It's don't make genre entertainment if you don't like genre entertainment. And don't make art films if you don't like art films. A lot of times, I think people do things because they think it's good for their career or... But I think these are the wrong motivations. You know, uh, uh, I make genre entertainment because that's what I actually like. I cast David Tennant in the movie because I'm a huge Doctor Who nerd. <laughs> I do things 100% passion-based. And I think once we try to, to figure it out, it's, a, it's, it's, it's already a mistake. Yeah, follow your passion. Well, I mean, look, yeah. if we could figure out filmmaking then every filmmaker would come from Harvard and Yale and every single movie would be a hit movie. It doesn't work that way. That's just not the way art works. Yeah, this isn't a Ford assembly line. It just, it, yeah, with the risk mitigation, which I think is what you're talking about when you're being forced to shoot in a location that's not in, in, you know, conducive to the, the character of the story, it feels like risk mitigation for the back end you know, or the bottom line, and you... you you can't get shoehorned into that. That's somebody trying to cram you into a, 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 as a square peg into a round hole. That's right. And the pieces that are coming off of it are pieces that you need for the audience to connect to. You need the specificity of a singular vision. Well, yes. I mean, I think so, or, or, or at least a small collective. But it, it can't be all things to everybody. Right. And, you know, you, you were talking about the difference of television and movies now. And if you think about it, when I was young, there was three networks. Later, it became four. So that meant you were dividing the pie in four sections. So fighting for your piece of that pie was a huge amount of money. Therefore, there was so much fear. Every TV show had all these rules on what you can and cannot do. Sure. And it was so formulaic because you, God forbid, could not risk losing a percentage of that pie, right? Movies at the time were going through a huge problem. You know, the studios were starting to go bankrupt. They didn't know what to do. And so they started gambling on these crazy filmmakers, and suddenly you had Easy Rider. The late and you had, 60s, right. Yeah, early 70s. And early 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get, and ultimately, even on the blockbusters, you end up getting Jaws and The Sting and really interesting movies that took risks. Well, now, movies cost $200 million, and they dominate the, the, the box office. And nobody wants to screw up a $200 million movie, so suddenly they've become much more formulaic, and there's all these rules on what you can and cannot do, and who you can and cannot cast. And conversely, 
there's now 500 television channels, mm -hmm. and the only get, way to get you to watch one of them is they have to do something kind of interesting. So suddenly now original in interesting voices and performances are happening on television, and movies are becoming more and more formulaic. So, so with a decision to make something like Bad Samaritan, knowing that you're, you can rock and roll on TV, and you are rock and rolling on TV here at your company, you still love making a movie. You know, I, I like telling stories. Yeah. And I don't care where that is. I mean, uh, if I fall in love with a story and it belongs in a movie theater, I'll fight like hell to do it there. If it belongs on television, I'll do it there. If it's a great serialized uh, 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 podcast, I would do that too. It's whatever is right for telling that story. You know, I, again, I think when we try to figure out, well, what would be a good TV series to make or what would be a good movie to make, I think you've got the tail wagging a dog. Yeah. It's what is the right place to tell this particular story. Yeah. I don't think my manager listens to the show. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we had a phone call, and, and, and he was like, you know, and, and he really wants me to, to write a pilot, Geekscapists, and I, I've, I've read, written some films, and I'm very passionate about the films, and I'm very passionate about my loose idea for a series. But I, no offense, I don't want to sit around at lunch and hash it out and figure it out. I, you know, I, I did that. Uh, some of you who have been with me 11, 12 years, you know, know my flirtations with the studios and this, this stuff that I've shot. And every time, you know, I, I've always gone to, every time it's, it's been bad, it's, been go, it's because it's gone to committee. And I really don't Absolutely. want to, I really don't want to hash it out Well, do you coffee. know about this? And so no offense, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to respond to an email currently. Like, I don't know if I want to respond to go to coffee. Do you know this group, uh, Legion M? Yeah, very much. They're the, the crowdfunding yep. source. Uh, Geekscape, as you know them, they did Colossal uh, with Anna Hathaway about two years ago. And, and um, I met them at Meltdown. So they're then. involved with us on Bad Samaritan. Fantastic. And I really think they could change the future of our business. I mean, imagine, uh, right now they have 35,000 members. Their goal is to get to a million. If they have a million members and they each put in $100... They can make a hundred million dollar movie. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of remarkable. And suddenly, the filmmaker would not be beholden to a corporation, but to the fans. Right. And isn't that really who we should be beholden to? Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I um, Legion M is always on uh, an idea that I I think about. Those, I thought those guys were really nice. I thought that they had a great idea. Um, you know, it, and I think that Geekscape is as we look at things like Bitcoin. And the way that we're crowdfunding and crowd generating, not just product but now income with something like, like a, a Bitcoin and, and and that stuff is that uh, you. I, I don't know if we're going back. And so I was on the phone with somebody asking, you know, we have this fantasy script in Geekscape. As you'll be, uh, we shot that sizzle, and you guys will know about the project I'm talking about. Uh, they're like, how do you make the world? And I literally looked up, and there are so many amazing artists who just want to get their stuff out there yeah. that I, you know, start to think about the ideas of crowdsourcing a visual look to a world and just taking all these incredible artists and inviting them to the party. And, get, you know, because Legion M will, yeah, I love them, and they invite you with the ideas of, of investing dollars. What if you can invest talent and have it? Uh, put together and molded into something that is ours, 
You know what I mean? So, um, so I, I just think that, that that's going to crack, and we're all going to be we're all going to be invited to, to some level of the party. Not to say that the that singular vision is going to be eroded. I just don't think that we can go back. I'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive. Right. I mean, I think that this may actually enable singular vision. In mm-hmm. other words, if you have a group of fans who like the work of a particular filmmaker, they may enable that filmmaker to make the film that they can make. Absolutely. Without having to suddenly cast it inappropriately because someone in the foreign department says, well, we need this for China. And there will always be plus and minuses to this stuff. Because <laughs> sometimes you think about it and you're like, should they have made that movie? <laughs> but you know what? Looking back at like the possibility of a Peter Siegel, Jack Black, Green Lantern movie, or remember, the, I mean, there was always that rumor of the Green Lantern movie of Jack Black, and you look back and you're like, you know what? I kind of wish I would have had that movie. It, for better or worse, I think it would have been interesting I, to watch. <laughs> I still wish I had seen uh, uh, um, James Cameron's Spider-Man. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I really wish I had seen that. Tim Burton's Superman. Just uh, that's the one I was going to say. The, the t- yeah, that's have you seen John Schnapp's documentary on it? I have. It's great. I right? mean, I, so look, there is no system where all films are going to be good. Sure, but. I do think that we are going to see a sea change in filmmaking. I think what the studios are doing is not sustainable. Um, And I think that the ability to distribute has become uh, easier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what we're rolling the dice on this movie. You know, look, we don't have anywhere near the kind of money or the machinery that a big studio has to release a picture. So we're going around the country and we're screening the movie You're left and right. This thing. No, we're not four-walling. It's a real proper two thousand screen release. Does that make sense? Like, like it's almost like, it's almost like because you guys are doing digitally. No, you're no, sending is, reels. We, well, no, I mean it's, but it's well, digital. They're, yeah, they're, it's all it's it, nobody has film projectors right, anymore. Right. Uh, but no, we're doing this as a proper two thousand screen release across the country. Out. But we are screening the movie constantly for groups of people and hoping that the movie itself will be the convincing tool to those people and that they'll function as our ambassadors and get the word out because we don't have the kind of money to advertise the way a big studio can. 2,000? 2,000 screens. As an independent film? As an independent film. Has an independent film done that before on that scale? Because that's a pretty aggressive Nope. So we're going to see whether it works. And you guys have already pushed the Avengers off of their release date. <laughs> they got scared. They got frightened. <laughs> I don't blame them. So the well, you know, Carrie Condon is actually yeah. in the Avengers as well as my film. Uh-huh. So I think, you know, maybe she talked to them in the movie. <laughs> guys, you don't know what's coming down the pipe. Uh, Geekscape is, I think you have your mission there. Uh, I couldn't have sold that any better than Dean just did. Um, if you want to see the, uh, if you want to see some some diversity in what your options are at the at the box office every weekend, uh, do yourselves a favor and go see this movie. I did not know that, I don't I didn't know that Legion M was involved, but I believe in that. Well, and in fact, a very fun way to go see the movie on opening weekend is if you go to legionm.com, you can sign up for a meetup, and you could actually say, "I would like a meetup in my town." Mm-hmm. They will organize it with other fans, and they'll find one screening. That will only be people who sign up on the meeting, and Legion M is giving away free swag, and it'll it'll give it much more of an event kind it's of party feeling. It's like feeling. a party feel. Exactly. Game is not, it's not just a movie; it's a chance to get a date now. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like you can go, you can have your friends there, you can have a party. I, this sounds great. Yeah. Um, that I mean, I, I hope you guys are still listening to this. This has been a, gr- a fantastic conversation, and. Um, 
that got me excited about it. Um, I knew that Legion M had the crowdfunding aspect to it. That the the fact that they're doing that with their distribution, their exhibition is pretty incredible. Um, Dean, that's awesome. Great. Uh, Great to talk to you. And and if this thing works, we'll come back. And we'll talk about it again, dude. I. <laughs> Love talking to storytellers on this. And you're somebody who I, as soon as the possibility came up to sit down with you, I was like, I think he's a like-minded geek. I for sure. I totally want to sit down with him. Thank you so much, dude. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Of course.